I'm Rich Parfrey, and it's a joy and a privilege as one of your elders here to preach today. I'm one of the under-shepherds here at Woodridge Church, and, and uh, Luke asked me actually to preach this week because they were on a uh, retreat, a pastor's conference, both Luke and Jesse and Drew and, and their spouses uh, this week, so it's a privilege to be able to open up God's Word today and, and uh, teach from Philippians. And so we're going to continue on the same path that we're on right within the series. And so we're going to finish up the, the first chapter in Philippians 1, 27 through 30 today. And um, so if you would open up your Bibles, we love to read in our Bibles directly here as we, as we read through that and what we're studying. So open those up and keep those open. Now the theme or header encapsulating today's scripture is encouragement to walk worthy of the gospel. And I'm hopeful that the Lord will bring you that, that encouragement as we learn together today what his word has for us. So let me read this for you. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had now, I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for giving us a time this morning to worship together in a place that's warm, inviting, and encouraging. That we can gather outside of the elements together every Sunday morning to lift your name up, the name above all names, Jesus Christ as a Lamb of God. A place where we can be convicted of our sins through the preaching of the word, uh, led by the Holy Spirit, and be reminded that you have accomplished a work that none of us here can accomplish on our own. A place we can pray together, trusting that our prayers are heard and that you will answer them. I pray that your Holy Spirit continue to move mightily here at Woodridge Church, that you strengthen us to see you more and more as our ultimate joy, our end to every mean, that we grow in increasing knowledge of your word, becoming a church that is growing in sanctification as your word makes its way through the minds and hearts and deeds of your believers here, being encouraged to proclaim you as God, you as Savior. Lastly, I pray our hearts and minds to be open this morning to what you're showing us through your word. Help us know more of your loving kindness, your grace and your mercy, and how perfectly loving and just you are. And as we know more of you, strengthen us to turn from our sin and to love. In Christ's name, amen. This morning I thought as a means of bringing us into the the context of what we're going to be studying, is I thought I'd go back through the last month's memory verses that we've been working through. And so we started out right away in this epistle, this epistle of joy, as it's so wonderfully called. We looked at our memory verse in Philippians 1-2, and I ask you to read it with me, this first verse. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul started out right away that he was encouraging, and all of, so, so often he is in his epistles, right from the start, talking to the saints, the deacons, the overseers that were in the church uh, in Philippi at that time. And while he was in prison, he was encouraging the church. So even though he was in this uh, jail state, he was in prison, he was thanking God in prayer and doing so with remembrance, with joy uh, as he was doing that. 
And then as we come to our second memory verse in Philippians 1.6, read it with me if you would. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we're talking about assurance here, right? That what a blessing it is to have the certainty given to us due to Christ's work. What a joy. Through his teaching, we learn more about prayer. This is the week that we really focused on prayer and the depth of prayer that, that uh, Paul had uh, and has for us as well. In the next memory verse, Philippians 1.12, let's read it together. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So in this, that week we focused on Paul's suffering and his life that he had and the suffering through it. And we learned how suffering gives us unique opportunities to share Christ, to increase our confidence in him uh, and in the Lord, and how the Holy Spirit will guide us as he leads us to proclaim Christ through times of suffering. And then this last week's passage that we just, uh, that we just talked for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So to live as Christ is our purpose and to die is gain is our promise. What joy we have here in, the, in life and in death as we live. So today, guys, too, when you think of um, uh, memory verse for this week, leave it to an elder to assign the most lengthy memory verse. <laughs> but if you would, it's going to be Philippians 1, 27. So for those of you who are memorizing on a week after week, Philippians 1.27, and I'll read it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So if you'd work with that this week, that'd be awesome. So that brings us into this context. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to further that just a little more of the context. And as Paul is writing this letter to the church, we see Paul's purpose is to express his thankfulness to this apostolic church in Philippi for the gift they had given him. They had sent him a gift and also to relieve them of the concerns that they were having for what he was going through in prison. As we continue to read in chapter 1, Paul wants to assure them that despite his trials, all that he's going through, the gospel is being preached and he's actually extremely joyful, too, because this is something that he's been praying for, not only that his life be used for the Lord, but that it be used to, the, to Rome as well. And so he's preaching to Roman guards while he's in prison, right? And so he's going through this suffering, but he wants to assure them that this is being used for the glory of the Lord. In this, in this last portion of chapter 1 that we're going to be studying today, Paul turns his attention to his concern for the Philippian church themselves, the people in Philippi themselves, the believers, and that whether he is present or absent, that their lives should be worthy of the gospel of Christ, no matter what the circumstances. That as Roman citizens, they shouldn't confuse their worldly citizenship that they have in Rome with their citizenship in heaven. And he's going to talk about that in Romans, and, um, further on in Philippians 3.20 as well, on where their citizenship is. Some additional background on this particular church with respect to the Philippian church is that the city itself, Philippi, was actually a Roman colony. And so when you look, it, it was a great privilege in that day to be a citizen in Rome and be called a citizen of Rome and a colony itself. So they had legal privileges, their names were on the scrolls in Rome, and they were citizens of Rome. That being said, Paul is reminding that even though they had this privilege, not to hold that privilege over the great privilege that they have 
as citizens in heaven. That yes, their resting place will be with God, but also that they more importantly were members of God's kingdom purchased by a price and that they should be living lives first and foremost that were focused on their one true membership that is adopted sons and daughters of the one true God, Jesus Christ. Remember that old adage when we, we say that not of this world, but in this world? Or I like rather that not of this world, but sent to this world, right? We're sent with a very specific purpose. Uh, the church in Philippi needed to be reminded to see themselves as God sees them. Yes, to realize that the culture that they were in, but to always remember the true citizenship came from and where it lies. So in today's text, we're going to see that Paul is going to encourage the church to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, a calling that we all need to realize more and more uh, as we continue to be sanctified in the Lord. So the main message of our text today is to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. As we dig in this passage, I want you all to think about a few questions, and I'll challenge you with a few questions as we look through this teaching to ask yourself. And so we look at those questions. The first is, what worth do you ascribe to Jesus? Second is, are you walking in unity with your church? Third, what are signs of your salvation? And then fourth, does God ordain our belief and our suffering? And so as I preach today, think through these four questions and um, search for an answer as we go through this that the Holy Spirit will give you that. When we reflect on today's passage that we've been working through so far in Philippians, we're coming to the end of that first chapter, we continue to, we continue to see the state that Paul is in, that he's in prison, he's in imprisonment, and even his suffering through continue, even through while he's suffering, he continues to encourage uh, the church in Philippi. And so let's dig into verse 27a. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul starts off this letter stating it right up front, worthy of the gospel. Living your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. That we are to live lives in such a way, such a holy way that our life demonstrates this worthiness. That it's seen by others as a life purchased by someone else. That it's worthy of the gospel. When you do a word search in the Bible and you look at the word worthy itself, so many scriptures are, are provided for us to look at that and what that is. And I've chosen three of them here. And we look at the worthiness of who Christ is. In 2 Samuel 22, 4, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this last one here in Colossians 1, that talks about the preeminence of Christ, of who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So is he worthy of our worship? Is Jesus the Christ who made all things, who was there in the beginning, who will be there with us in eternity, who shed his blood for our sin, is he worthy? Paul previously in this chapter encouraged the church through his own example when he was going through verses 12 through 26. And he saw, and there we, he saw the gospel as the key to his past and to his future and that exalting Christ was his sole focus for living. I was thinking about this worthiness, this worthiness of who God is, the position he is in. And I, I started thinking about the year in politics that we've had this year. It's been a crazy year for politics. I know everybody would agree. I'm, I'm 47, I'll be 48 next month, and I've, I've studied and participated in the elections as I've been an adult. And uh, wow, it was, it was the, I think we all can agree, it was the most vicious year I think we've ever seen, at least in our lifetimes. But the one thing I know, no matter what the outcome would have been, no matter a Republican or Democrat, that in our household, even though we don't always like the candidate position, we have a reverence for the office of the presidency itself. We have a respect for what that office means as the most powerful position held by a human here on earth. And that whoever takes on that task, there deserves to be respect given to that office. No matter if it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, now with Donald Trump, there's a worth given to that office. Whether you agree with their decisions or not, whether you are aligned with the current president's political bend, the office deserves respect. That office has been ordained by God. It has worth. And when the people speak through their votes, we need to give respect to that office. While this is an office for a man, how much more should we honor God for who he is? Do we show the same respect to his authority in our lives as we do these human offices? Jesus is worthy because he is God. How much more should we, when we look at that, nothing more needs to be said. But if we're to ask ourselves, yes, Jesus is God, his position and his, who he is in our lives, but then also we look at what he's done, what he needed to do uh, for us. And that worthiness of when we look at him as our God becomes even fuller. It becomes even more beautiful when we look at the work that he's done on our behalf for our sin. It becomes even more beautiful. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, it reads, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul stated here that it's a matter of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. The gospel has worthiness of first importance. In our passage today, Paul goes on to explain that it be a matter of living in that life, that whether he is with them or away from them, that we live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He turns it to the church to say that they should do the same that he has done and is doing, that doing the same whether he was with them or not, live lives worthy of the gospel no matter what, just as we are doing, just as he was doing with his own suffering, his own circumstances, even in prison. Jesus Christ is worthy and we are to live lives worthy of the gospel. One thing that's interesting, you look at all the beautiful scripture about his worthiness and who he is and who we are in him, but we also look at what, it, what does the word tell us about what it means not to be worthy. 
And in Luke 14, 26 through 27, we read, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So in Luke, as well as many other scriptures in the word, Matthew 10 and so on, we see the, unless Christ is your highest treasure, even over any relationship, your marriage, your children, over any relationship, even your own life, and that also that we bear our own crosses, we are not just worthy of him, we're not even called disciples of him. As we learned last week, holding anything over Christ, cherishing anything over Christ is not good as a believer. It's sin, right? We put anything over Jesus, it's sin. However, we do it, I do it. We're in a sinful world. We're battling the adversary. We have the sin of our flesh and we have false gods in our lives. And at times on this side of heaven, we worship them instead of God. We pray for the strength of the Holy Spirit so we don't stay there, right? That we continue to focus on him. Can we continue to rest in what he's done for us and repent of our sins and trust in him? But we have them in this world and we know that those are fallen desires and it's sinful. There are so many references to what it means to be worthy and not worthy in scripture when you do your own word search. I love the way John Piper puts it. One of his sermons I listened to in preparation for this one, he says that the point of studying the worthiness of God is not to tell that there is an impossible standard that we can never meet, because we know there is, right? And Christ achieved that on our behalf. But to tell us what normal Christianity looks like, it's a life worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord, worthy of God, worthy of the kingdom. Knowing that the impossible task of gaining any worthiness on our own in God's eyes, God's eyes, outside of Christ, helps us cling to his cross again and again. It gives us certainty in who he is and who we are. It keeps us focused on what our purpose is here in this foreign world, what our lives should be used for and ultimately in our hope of him coming again. What does that look like for us? What does living for Christ and valuing Christ over all things look like? Pollock starts to explain this in the next set of scripture. And so when we look at verses 27b through 28b, I'll read it. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. At this time, as I said prior, Paul doesn't know whether he's going to go off and be with his friends. That's where he wants to go next with the brothers and sisters in Philippi or if he's going to be martyred. Excuse me. So he wants to ensure that the church has some good, solid application to what it means to walk worthy uh, in the gospel, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, there's a commentary uh, that I use for this sermon from uh, J.A. Mateer. And in this commentary, he talks about steadfastness being grounded in unity within the church. And when Paul was... Uh, speaking here, when he was writing here, he was talking specifically about being in unity in the spirit with one mind in action and in faith. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take these four elements of uh, spirit, in the spirit, with one mind, 
in action, and in faith. And we're going to break these down, okay? So that first element, unity of the Spirit, standing firm in one spirit. Paul's reference here is to the Holy Spirit himself, who has already been given to us as believers in Christ. So this command to stand firm in one spirit is referring to something that God has already accomplished on our behalf, that he's already given to us, that he gives to every believer who, who repents and trusts in him. Believers are united by one spirit and dwelled by that spirit, and this spirit is the spirit of God. We, all of us, as his church, as individuals, have been given the Holy Spirit. It has been accomplished, and he has given himself as the Holy Spirit to do many things in our lives. The Holy Spirit leads us, he convicts us, teaches us, equips us to do his work and to spread the gospel. You look across scripture and you look at the role of the Holy Spirit, either what he's called or what he does. There's several that I'm gonna list here for. He's called our helper. He indwells us and seals us until the day of redemption. He assists us in our prayer. He intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God in Romans 8. He regenerates us, renews us. He is our comforter and brings us joy as we live and battle in this hostile world. He sets himself against our own selfish, fleshy desires and leads us into righteousness. He gives us our gifts to be used for him as he determines in his wisdom. He gives, us, he gives believers wisdom by which we can understand God and he causes us to overflow with joy and peace. All these things and more, the scriptures tell us, he gives us through the Holy Spirit. And through all those things, he wants us to be unified seeing him for who he is, discerning his ways through his help in unity. And so he entrusts us to be unified in one spirit. The second element is the unity of heart and mind with one mind. So what is Paul talking about here? The word mind here is referring to our psyche. It's referring to a person's affections and moral direction. It points to an attitude and feelings about the believer's object of affection. Paul encourages us to have a oneness in thinking and feeling and a mutual love and respect for one another as we battle together in this world. When we see each other correctly, right, that we're saved sinners as a body of believers, and then we look at that with one mind, we should be loving each other, encouraging each other in one mind because of that one spirit that we share. The third element that Paul talks about is unity in action, striving side by side. We should be striving side by side together for the sake of the gospel, and we do this through action. A fellow brother and sister in Christ may say that they have unity of spirit in one mind, but as you know, actions speak louder than words. There's one thing to say I love you, there's another thing to prove I love you and do that love to someone, right? There's a work that needs to be done for Christ, and it's best accomplished together with action. Ask yourself for a second, when you think about ways that, are there ways that you are uniting in this church and are there ways that your actions may be causing division within this church? We know that the gospel in and of itself will unite and also will divide. We know that even the name of Jesus Christ himself divides, right? Just bring up the name in circles. Today at the Super Bowl when you're with it, bring up Jesus with your friends and family that don't know him. And you'll see very clearly we know this, right? Again and again. Some will turn to him and they'll 
give me that business card. I want to talk about it later in another room or something like that. Oh, I've been praying for my son or daughter. I've been praying for my husband. And praise God you mentioned his name, you know, or you talked about the gospel during that halftime show. But then there's others, what happens, right? They can't, they despise us for just saying the name of Jesus. They're repulsed by the name higher than any other name, a name we love so much. There's also times we divide for the sake of the gospel, such as in Acts 15 and Paul and Barnabas going their separate ways due to a conflict within the body. And in spite of that, the church remains strong. So we are to strive for unity, even though, even though we know there will be division, sometimes even righteous division. So let me ask you, church, are there times that we are needlessly dividing over something or causing division when we are to have joy in our unity. Being unified with one spirit, one mind, side by side. Ask yourself what you may be needlessly dividing over. I'll list a few examples for you that may challenge you in your hearts. Maybe it's something like which translation of the Bible you're using. Maybe it's a method of ministry. Maybe there's a direction that the ministry's going in and you, there's some... Uh, something that you're stuck on that you just can't follow your leaders because there's a direction they're going in. Maybe it's our participation in a non-Christian holiday or you see people doing that. Perhaps there's some tertiary doctrine that's become a source of contention for you with others that you've lifted up as primary importance in your life that's caused this division. Oh, here's a good one. Raise your hand on this one. How about worship music? That's always a big one with the churches, right? It's, just, it's either too loud or too soft or didn't pick the right songs or we need more hymns or more relevant songs. Let's get even, even more little personal, guys. We, we're a family after all, right, as a church of body. Um, perhaps there's a misunderstood comment, something that rubbed you the wrong way. Did you go back and ask that person more about why they might have said that? Or, or come back to them and say, forgive me, I might have said something that I shouldn't have said? Or did you just move on and say, we just don't have, we don't have the same chemistry, we have different chemistry, we just don't get along? Are we striving for that unity? Are we striving to take those divisions that are caused needlessly that, and, and, we're, and, and instead we're not looking to the unity that we have in Christ? Are any of these things of first importance? Are these divisions worthy of the gospel? When we're striving side by side, together, we become more than just acquaintances, more than just we go to the same church, more than just even friends. We're called to be co-laborers in Christ, brothers and sisters as members of the same body. We have a greater purpose in striving, in growing together here at Woodridge, co-laborers for the gospel, co-laborers for Christ. That we look upon that cross as an encouragement to go and love one another as he loved us sacrificing, giving of our lives, looking beyond our fleshly desires, our own interests, our own our disagreements, knowing that he gave us everything, even his life for our sake. How can't we see our lives in that light and apologize, forgive, seek understanding, strive together side by side, love one another when he's loved us so much? We are sinners and we shouldn't be surprised when we sin against each other. Let's be a people to quickly ask for forgiveness, to quickly say it was my fault, putting aside our own perspective and attempting to see the season the other person is in, what God is doing in their lives and not just our own. The last element, the fourth element, 
here in this portion of scripture is unity and faith, the faith of the gospel. In this section, we see Paul emphasizing our ultimate common denominator that unites us as a church in the agreement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are brought together and stay together because we believe that Jesus is the only way to God the Father. If we don't have that church, then we have no church. As Matir puts it, the unity of the church is a unity in the doctrine and the experience of salvation. There are churches in North America, and sadly, I think many churches in America specifically, where unity is held above all things, and truth is put behind unity, ensuring that there's no conflicts over doctrine, no conflicts over what is true and what isn't. It's almost as if truth is being sacrificed on the altar of unity. That truth is dependent on what book you're referring to or what theologian you most ascribe to, that there isn't any absolute truth, only what's the most relevant thought for the day. Unity is held to a higher place in, in more regard than truth as a means of keeping the peace. We here at Woodridge believe that being together in and teaching doctrine promotes unity. Sorting out what the word says to be true, who Jesus is, what the gospel is, who the Trinity is, these are all things of importance. And then we teach them in unity. We share openly about who he is and who he's not. In some churches and Christian circles, there's even a misunderstanding over what the gospel is. Some may say it's being like Christ, or some may say the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some say it means you grow in prosperity and wealth. Some equate the gospel with social justice. There's all these false, fake, counterfeit gospels that are out there. What do you say he's all about? What do you, who do you say he is? Even in your own testimony, is it about Christ and the work he's done for you on the cross? When you share Christ, are you praying for the Lord to lead you to share and speak about who he is and what he's done for us? That he's the only way to heaven, to a right relationship with God? Due to our sin causing the separation between us and the holy God, are you expressing the need to confess and turn to Jesus? When we hold anything above God, our relationships, our wealth, our gifts, even unity, we tarnish the glory of who he is by the way we share, by the way we live. That God the Father gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross as a sacrifice for our sin, accomplishing a work that no man can accomplish on our own. And he gives us life in the Holy Spirit, in the here and the now, and in eternity with him. And that message of hope, that message of love, may that message of who he is and what he's done for his people be the message, the person of Jesus himself that brings us our greatest joy. That his gospel exudes from our souls and encapsulates our minds and pours out from our mouths when we do it corporately as a church, enjoying him, causing divisions to fade, forgiveness to be had because of his love for us. I trust we all pray for that to continue to occur in our hearts individually and corporately here at Woodridge. So there's two last reasons, uh, areas that I want to go through here in Scripture um, that I'd like to encourage you with today. And first, the first verse in 28b, before I read it again, remember that Paul wrote this letter um, and some of the church were experiencing persecution. And so he knew that he was suffering, but also the church in Rome and Philippi was being persecuted as well. 
and they need to be encouraged. And Paul is reminding them to stand firm together and to be courageous. So in verse 28b, we read, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and from God. When we live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we are reminded, we are reminder to non-believers of their judgment. When we live for Christ and Christ alone, the love, the passion, the trust we exude as believers, even though at times of suffering, is a stench to those who are not in love with Jesus. Church, don't let that discourage you because he tells us it's going to happen. He tells us in his word it's going to happen. There will be a division between who knows him and who doesn't know him. And we should expect that. And we should love everyone. We should love everyone, but we should expect uh, what's going to happen. He tells us that as we live lives that are holy, it will remind them of their destruction, but also of your salvation, that your deeds, deeds that come from motives of serving our king, bring you joy. Due to his worth, we strive, we press on, not being frightened in anything by our opponents. Sometimes we lack this courage. And sometimes I ask myself, am I trying to please man instead of pleasing God? Expecting that if I bend the truth a little, maybe there'll be less suffering. Will it attract, maybe it'll attract more people to our church if we water down the gospel a little bit. Maybe we'll win somebody over because we didn't profess his truth openly. No, we gotta stand together, church. We gotta be courageous in the way in which we profess the good news of who he is, what he's done in our life. Paul is saying here that we are to expect our lives to be a clear sign of their destruction. For example, it should not come as a surprise when we speak about gospel truths such as men and women being equal but having different roles. We shouldn't be surprised, for example, that when we talk about the sin of homosexuality and the hardships that it brings in our families, that we will, in this world, be mocked We'll be told that we're unloving, that we're uncaring. When we profess the one true God and we profess only one way to God, that when we believe all have sinned and fall short of his glory, that when we help people understand that we all need a savior, that Jesus is our all in all, our lives, our profession of truth, and the deeds in our lives will be a clear sign of their destruction. This is not only a sign of their destruction, it's also a clear sign to us of our salvation. In Romans 12, we see additional signs of who we are as Christians when Paul describes the, the marks of a Christian. Romans 14, uh, 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the, with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is a surprise to them. It's not what is expected. Many overcome evil by evil, but we as believers in the triune God overcome evil with good, with our love. 
The last point today comes from our last verse, that our faith and our suffering have been ordained by God, granted to us for the sake of Christ. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, who, the Father who sent me draws him. Our belief comes from God as a free gift from him so that none of us can boast. In suffering, too, we see in Matthew 5, 11, 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. In other scriptures, such as the book of Job, we see all that Job endured. It helps us see even a bigger picture of suffering. Suffering, like all other human experiences, is directed by the sovereign wisdom of God. And so we know, friends, that we will suffer for his sake. Just like our belief, he's granted us suffering. So Christian, lift your head up and look to Christ as we go through hardships and suffering in this life. Let your sufferings be used for Christ, knowing it came from him. So finally, church, before I pray, I ask you uh, in conclusion, let your manner be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of living be worthy of the gospel. Let your life of striving together in one spirit, one mind, side by side, be a beacon of light in your communities. Know that your life proclaims who Christ is and is a testimony of our destination. That our faith and suffering are given to us by God, free to us, but not free for God. God the Father gave his one and only Son. Christ, as our perfect lamb, provided a work through his death that paid the penalty for our sin, giving us life abundantly in the here and the now and eternity with him. And thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we desire to worship you as the object of our greatest affection. Your worthiness is above all things, things in this world, things of our fleshly desires. You are our king. You are our God. Thank you for opening our minds and hearts today to what your word has provided. We pray that your truth continues to grow deeply in all of us and that as we grow in knowing you more, seeing our sin for what it is and turning to you, growing in you, strengthen you, loving more and more as you would love others each and every day. No matter what that day brings, whether it's suffering in good times or in bad. That we see you as sovereign over all, that your Holy Spirit equips us as our comforter, our helper, interceding for us in accordance with your will, causing us to overflow with joy and peace. Please help us love you more, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and to love others. Amen.